Welcome to Swimming with Alligators. I'm Ernest Sweat, and each episode, Alexa Benz and I give you a VC podcast from the LP perspective. You ready? Let's dive in. On today's episode of Swimming with Alligators, we have the pleasure of speaking with Roxanne Gogan, an LP and a futurist who has invested in a full spectrum of different asset classes and is bullish on venture capital. I really enjoyed this conversation, uh, all the insights. What about you, Alexa? Roxanne took us on a total whirlwind. She gave us some insight that's pretty obvious to anyone over 60 that the rest of us can't see where the opportunities for outsized gains are this decade and how to succeed in the age of constraints we have just entered. So with that, let's jump in. Today, we are speaking with Roxanne Guggen, a futurist and limited partner who has invested in the full spectrum of capital structures, from seed capital to asset-based lending and everything in between. We are in for a treat. For over 20 years, Roxanne published The High Tech Observer, a publication focused on what she calls techonomic disruption, which I would love to hear more about. Among her many predictions, Roxanne called the dot-com boom and bust, the emergence of the wireless internet, as well as the rise of AI. We're very grateful to have her historical perspective on this show. Thank you for speaking with us, Roxanne. I am on the edge of my seat to hear your next prediction. Now we're going to take a quick break to speak with our sponsor. I'm curious, Roxanne, there's something you've mentioned to us that is obvious to anyone over 60 that the rest of us youngins just don't see. Um, Would you mind giving us a little history lesson on basically the 10-year treasury and how it's played in all of these big booms that you've identified? Yes, um, and I can start with the 90s, but one thing anyone who didn't like literally try to make a living, you could have been alive in the 70s, but if you were like trying to feed yourself, that was a different feel. You realize that the world is not infinitely expandable. So for the last, really since 1980, we had a couple of things going on. We had fabulous demographics. We had exponentially growing automation. And we had globalization, particularly with China, with an extra billion workers. And they were willing to work for not much money. And one reason for that is the way their society is set up, they will never be imaginative. They're good at copying. So what they do is they take your idea and then replicate it at extremely low cost and at high volume. So so we had this infinite cheap labor force that would do whatever we wanted. Um, and so what happened is that restructured the whole economy in a way that costs just kept falling. This has never happened. I'm still shocked by it. You know, just costs kept going down the production kept blowing up and you could buy, you know, now you could get a shirt on Xi'an or whatever it's called, you know, for $5, probably made with slave labor, um, you know, in the turnaround. It's like infinitely expandable production. Well, that does, like the earth is starting to get pretty pissed 
Like, it's like, you know what? You can't do that. And so we've lived in this mirage and the cost of everything and the supply demand balance is reflected, not in equities, but in the debt markets. And so, and again, I'm familiar with the debt markets. I'm at home, Adam. So one thing to look at is the 10 year, because it's, we're the biggest economy. We're the world's reserve currency. You know, we get to cheat. And it's like the most important fundamental number of supply demand balance on the planet. And it is a planetary number, really. So it, you know, and I keep focusing on this chart of the 10 year from the St. Louis Fed. And it's just, you know, the chart, it just went down for 40 years as this paradigm kept growing. The automation kept growing. The uh, you know demand seemed insatiable, uh, and the and because we had China on our side, you know there was just infinite numbers of peasants, you know, coming in, and you know making whatever we wanted, um, and that was never going to last forever. You couldn't do it. The resources were just not there. Uh, you know, we were already using like two times the planetary output every year. So at some point it wasn't going to work anymore. And that ended with COVID. Uh, so what happened is the social stress of that disease, I think, caused a lot of political problems, right? And we're still paying the price for that. And I think like the Black Death of the 1300s, the, the ramifications of the shock that we've been through have not all been appreciated yet. Um, and the social, right, the social. So after uh, the Black Death, uh, you had the Renaissance. You had the peasants could finally mm. go on strike for the first time. Does this sound familiar? This is yes. a little familiar right now. Um, so the balance of income went from a gazillion poor peasants to and a couple rich landowners. You got the guilds. You got the middle class. You got the trades. That ended up with democracy, like, you know, the whole thing, because it's really not just economic. It is in a stable political infrastructure, but I have to come up with a new word because politics is also part of that word. It's like you can't. Does that make sense? In, in a stable political structure, it is economics. You cannot look at one without the other. You're foolish to do that because you will be wrong. That's the problem. You're missing a key variable. Um, and so back in the 90s, I, I was watching this and it was just like now. Everyone was watching Chairman Greenspan and how fat his briefcase was because, you know, oh, the economy's growing. He's going to prices are going to go up and he's going to have to put on the put down the hammer and the whole irrational exuberance. And I was writing to clients back then. I said, he's wrong. Like, you know, um, I can see the numbers in the manufacturing companies. Inventory terms went from like four times. This is not even a word most people know about now, but you're going to learn about it again. It's how fast you could make and sell things. A lot of manual processes. I was in manufacturing. I used some of the first computers. I saw what happened. It was unbelievable. Um, and you could see it going through the economy, but you had to know what to look for. So Chairman Greenspan, well, we can't possibly make that much stuff without running into supply problems. And I was saying, oh, yes, we can. You're, you're going to be really surprised by this. And we are going to make more stuff than ever before with the same inputs. And we're not going to have inflation. 
And that's exactly what happened. Then it culminated in OO, you know, because now we've been doing this automation. It's working great. And now this internet thing's showing up, you know, and it's like, wow, it's kind of like AI right now. You know, we could see the upside, but there was a problem. We could talk about, it was too productive and it kind of wrecked everything. Then we could talk about, you know, but I don't know if you want to talk about that. But um, so that era is ended and the, the whole amazing 1990s, um, it ended with COVID. So we had that nice last spurt with the amazing productivity of the mobile internet, which is just unbelievable. Right? That was just the stuff of uh, witchcraft. <laughs> I mean, uh, right. Uh, yeah. You know, talking, you know, tracking. I talk to people and I say, well, us boomers have to leave and it's your turn. And we left you with a wrecked planet that we made the mobile internet. Like no one handed that to us. We, we're giving that to you. And now it's your turn to use that for something. Um, but so the tenure is telling you all this amazing stuff is running out of steam. Something big that's planetary is happening to cause the cost of capital for the entire planet to break a 40-year downtrend. That's the shocking part. So the world that you're getting, like all that stuff isn't working. Something bigger than that is happening. And that's what that yield is telling you. I... I appreciate that we've only known the good times here, us, you, us babies. You don't know. <laughs> yes. You have no idea. Yeah. Someone like me, I feel it in my gut. I'm like, oh, <laughs> oh, this again. Because every time you grow, bam, they're going to wreck it down because they cannot let that. It's really the value of money going down. Everyone sees it as prices going up, but they can't let the dollar go down or people won't like us as a reserve currency. And we will have to pay out in bond yields all of our growth. We won't be able to invest in our future. It's imperative they get this number down. And so it's getting out of their control and they're, they're not happy. And this is how we lived. This was life. You know, you paid 20% interest rates for a house. Sorry. It wasn't a very big house, you know. That's okay. You get used to it. You'll get used to it. You know? uh, okay, we're but it's annoying. We're tightening our belts. the The low cost growth era is over. Um, I I have heard you say though there are some outsized gains still on the horizon this decade. Oh, for sure, because we're at a total reset. You have to build a new thing that's like the mobile internet. Like, what are you going to build that addresses this problem? We will start with a clean slate. There'll be huge uh, infrastructure swap outs. All of the investment that is in most companies is obsolete. They cannot function in this pressure cooker of a world. Like, that's obvious to me. I, I know this technology intimately. I can look at the world and see how chaotic it is. Uh, again, the, the cost pressures building. As we decouple from China, we're losing a billion workers. I know they have 1.4, but you know, I'm just like, maybe it's 750 million. I mean, we only have 330 million people. 
you know, we can go to, to Mexico and we will, but they have like 80 million people. <laughs> like we're losing a lot here and we are losing it. And we have to retool for that. And we can't, I think it'll be a lot of AI, a lot of 3D printing, totally different supply chains. That's your opportunity. And do it in a way that we don't destroy the planet. That's a lot of investment. Yeah, it, 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 you're on a lot of themes that I agree with of like labor's changing, like people are retiring, we're not creating enough people, me and Alexa's gener generation. And so it need, we're going to need technology to be able to fill those gaps. Um, kind of switching gears. The like, or your standard no. of living will change. Oh, <laughs> One or the well, other. <laughs> well, well, those times have already changed. Those have already changed. Um, but yes, they might continue to change. Um, but I wanted to get from the, the LP perspective, because the common narrative is that LPs are kind of reeling in their commitments to venture right now um, and really questioning, even though, you, you know, there is a lot of opportunity there. It's like it's been a crazy upturn. So what's kind of your perspective on for LP, you know, for venture right now? What are you doing? Like, are you getting more aggressive on it? Are you being more particular about you know, what types of opportunities and what type of, of managers you're going after? Uh, well, I have my opinions for sure. And I have. So this what's happening right now isn't surprising to me. It's surprising to a lot of people, but I've been expecting it for a couple of years now, you know, because that's what I do. So um, I have been interested in uh, is I forget the guy's first name, Rothschild. You know, you, you invest when there's blood in the streets and so I've been keeping some powder dry because there's not enough blood. Um, but I see uh, at the same time, the tools are emerging. You know, when the student is ready, the teacher will come. There's tools emerging and I'm pretty happy to invest. Um, you know, but that said, you do need to keep uh, some powder dry. So, so that's the balance. So I'm happy to invest because I'm, quite positive that we'll have this retooling and that I've been focused on for some years now, very practical companies, companies that help enter, not consumer. I'm like, no, that's not a thing to do. Like I'm getting out of that segment. Um, so I'm into enterprise. I'm into retooling. I'm into using AI to revolutionize the power of operations in a chaotic world. So that's what I'm invested in. I have a big AI investment, but you know, so that I've been doing that for years now, getting ready for this moment. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so, yeah, the prices are going down and you'll never call the bottom and you need to keep some cash for you, you know, because like, you know, you don't know when the liquidity is going to open up. You don't. And, uh, but it will, I mean, things have been bad before. And here we are, right? And how do we get here? We innovate, we work, we take chances and we win and we do it intelligently. Um, so this too will change. Does that make sense? Yeah, I don't know what year it'll happen. And so you need to know that costs are gonna be going up for you personally and you need enough cash. But at the same time, get this, you can't invest in legacy anymore. That mm. is a depreciating asset fundamentally, because it was built for a different world. 
a world that's gone. It's not going, it's gone. Now we're gonna take a quick break to speak with our sponsor. With us today is Tyler Kirtley, partner at Gunderson Detmer. PitchBook has named Gunderson the number one law firm globally for investors five years in a row. Our guest Tyler is a dear friend from college. His practice focuses specifically on structuring, forming, and operating VC funds. Tyler is the darn loveliest lawyer to work with out there. Thank you, Tyler, so much for your advice and expertise. Could you tell us a bit about your firm, Gunderson Detmer, and your role there? Yeah, so thanks for asking. That's a We're a different type of law firm. We were founded 30 years ago to focus on the needs of venture-backed companies and the funds that invest in them. So we're singularly focused in the venture area. We don't have ancillary practice groups like litigation or bankruptcy. We're, we're, we're solely focused on the needs of emerging companies and the funds that invest in them. And it's led to us becoming the leading law firm in the market. PitchBook has uh, named us the number one most active law firm for venture financings globally since they started tracking that information in 2014. And on the fund formation team, which I am a part of, we've uh, represented funds that have raised over $130 billion of capital since the start of 2021. Uh, so we understand the market really well. Uh, we've worked on a ton of deals, and that enables us to give our clients really high quality and timely business and strategic advice on what's happening in the market, how to navigate it. Um, my practice focuses specifically on venture and growth equity fund formation. So I uh, represent a number of first-time funds or funds that have graduated to funds two, three, four. And that's really fun part of my practice because I get to see firms that didn't exist come into existence and then continue to grow and, and have their teams grow. And, and, and that's really fun for me. And it's also fun to work with several uh, large established managers that have huge teams and huge institutional LP bases. Um, so that's the other side of my practice. No, I, I got to work with the fund formation team at Gunderson uh, on raising Maven Fund 3. Mm-hmm. And it really felt like the Gunderson folks were part of our team. You know, it was like we were all raising that fund together. Um, yeah. I mean, we always say, and and I think this, like I want to treat every client like they're my friend. And so when someone reaches out to me, uh, how do I respond? I want to respond as if they're my friend because they are my friend. And so I think that changing it from a, I'm a service provider to you and I'm just here to do the things that you want me to do. And then I go home and I stop like that. That model doesn't really work. I don't think as well as we have a personal relationship. I'm your partner. Uh, we rely on each other and, um, that it makes going to work each day much more, uh, much more satisfying. No, for sure. It, it felt like okay, you all have been here before, you know, we were going from a $15 million fund to a $60 million fund, and that's a jump, and it's, you know, that yeah. this this isn't new to you all. Um, it's, it's, it's good to have the perspective. Do you think this is a good time to be raising? Why or why not? I think if you look at the historical data regarding um, different vintages of funds raised across different market cycles, that data would suggest that now is a great time to be raising. Uh, the problem right now is that it's very hard to raise capital. 
So uh, especially for newer fund managers, uh, I think existing fund managers that have long-standing institutional LP relationships are still able to close funds and do so on similar timelines as they did before, but they're generally not uh, increasing fund size the way that they were a couple of years ago. Uh, newer fund managers are finding it difficult to forge those new LP relationships and getting to a first closing is taking a lot longer. That is the theme of this show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when it comes to the terms in the limited partner agreement, the LPA, are you seeing any drift or new trends? No, I'm not seeing any major changes in terms. You see micro trends for different types of funds, the, the types of terms that make it added to the LPAs. Uh, you also see certain limited partners that have their own issues that they focus on when they negotiate the fund agreement. And these days they may be focusing on those more strongly than they were a few years ago. But in terms of the core economics of a standard 10-year life fund, those have remained relatively stable over the last few years. To get in touch with Tyler Kirtley or any of the other fabulous lawyers at Gunderson Detmer on the fund formation team, you can find their profiles at gunder.com. G-U-N-D-E-R dot C-O-M. And now back to our LP interview. So with your background, you have both a technical and financial background. I'm curious on what kinds of managers, like what experience is going to be necessary, even if they all think the same, what do you think is going to be most necessary to take advantage of all the blood in the street this Guts. next decade? Yeah. Guts. Say, say more on that, like elaborate on like, what, what does that look like? More conviction, more like what? Fast decision-making under very high pressure. That's counterintuitive. People need to be able to uh, kind of like outwit the others. They have to move faster. They have to move bigger. They have to be fearless about it. Does that make sense? It, it's like yeah. a jungle out there. Think you're in the jungle. Think you're in a, a war and like the bombs are going off and you're the guy that has to, you know, get something done. It's going to be a chaotic, negative environment. Hmm. Uh, but that's where the Phoenix, I've seen this. I've lived through this more than once. This is how it works. Like this isn't new. Yeah. Yeah, this is this is the sense? age of constraints. Uh, yeah, so 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 we'll have some. I mean, living through the dot com bust like that wasn't fun, and and it looked bad. Like mm -hmm. you know, Amazon got to six dollars, right? It's a, whatever it is, you know, and so thousand whatever. But that's the type of gains you get. So yeah. you're crazy not to embrace it, but bombs are going off but there's blood in the street and you just have to be calm about that and you know i mean i'm a mom and you know and i hate to say this but you know there's the helicopter parents and i'm like a generation older than my uh kids peers parents you know because that's just how it works and i'm always like take off on your bike like get on a bus like when they were 10 I'm like, get on the bus and figure it out. And, you know, and every, so long as the, the heat I got for that, I, I can't, it was constant. And so, uh, 
people that didn't grow up that were too, like their parents kept helping or something, like that's going to be tough. That's, this is going to be a tough time for that because mm-hmm. you're, you're, you're going to skin your knees. As a futurist, we would be remiss not to ask you to tell us about the things that that you're just tracking on these remarkable hikes you're taking in the great outdoors. You've mentioned over-indebtedness, aging demographics, AI, deglobalization, climate change. Is there one of these topics you'd be willing to just sort of open up for us how you're seeing it? We're facing a new environment where a destructive uh, technology is going to have to come in and ruin the economic models of the giants of industries, you know it today. I mean, I can't wait for it to change healthcare. I can't mm. wait for it to change education. Like that would be great. I think it's gonna change financial services. I think the local banks are going away. Like everyone's like, oh, there's less banks. Oh my, it's gonna be on your phone. <laughs> Just get over it. Uh, you know, there's gonna be AI. You don't have like these you know, like the credit rating agencies. Are you kidding me? Like they have to go. So, okay. So here's another thing people aren't thinking about. So 2%, why does the Fed want 2% money? Because that's all they can afford. So our bonds are equal to our GDP. So if you're paying out to bondholders, 2%, that's 2% of GDP that like you're not seeing. You can't invest in that. Either that or you got to print more money and then the dollar debases. So he's in a bind here and then he has an aging workforce. You could, you know, there's a lot of need for productivity all of a sudden. Um, so 5% yield, you are paying out because we have so much debt more than you're earning as a society. It's, it's, it, it's, an un, it's, it's a terminal burden. So we need to um, stop that. And, you know, we do it. So, so what does uh, Chairman Powell look at? He looks at that PCE, personal consumption expenditures, which has three components, goods, housing, services, ex-housing, essentially. Uh, the problem is that services, ex-housing is 55% of his index. Uh, and that includes um, health care, <laughs> the biggie, uh, financial services, education, all the things that have been inflationary, all the things mm. that are not responding to his signals of um, interest rate hikes. Why? Because they're monopolistic and they're typically owned by PE firms and they're designed not to, to be totally inflationary. And if they don't like what they're seeing, the PE guys, they run to the Supreme Court and try to get a law passed so that you cannot lower their prices. That's kind of what you're starting to see here. Uh, even when uh, Biden was trying to, you know, oh, we're going to lower 10 drugs, you know, to massively let people on Medicare survive. They're already saying we're going to go to the Supreme Court over this. So mm. that's their back end. So here's, here's the dirty secret. So the services X housing, which is, Again, kind of dumb. Why is it so inflationary? Because it's monopolistic and it's really not, it's part of the shadow economy. It's not part of the economy that you're seeing. It's um, the prices have gone up so much. It's 55% of that index. 
And if you look at the St. Louis Fed, the inflation rate in that sector is pretty predictable at four and a half percent. If you do the math to get to two percent on everything with 55 percent of it is growing at four and a half percent. Everything else must be deflationary. You can't do it because we have a new generation coming up. They're going to want housing. So housing, you can like, you're not, it's not going to be deflationary. Goods could be deflationary. I, I give them that. But we need to restructure. If we are going to live under our debt service, we need to restructure. We can't just skate by anymore with that PCE. So I'm very optimistic that you guys are going to go out there and the VCs. So there's a great need. There's a great need for new revolutionary things. And the VCs are the ones that are, that are, they're, they're the ones that are financially motivated to do this, right? So you want to participate. This is your future. It's almost like you can't not. Hmm. No, no, I, I, I think of you, Ernest, when I think of the upgrading the entire software infrastructure of corporate America, that's, that's your jam. So I'm inspired that we have yeah. the right people on the, on the job. Um, yeah, you're speaking my language, Roxanne. Thank oh, really? You. Uh, yes, I, I love for the biggest industries in the world that haven't gotten enough technology. That's my jam. Um, that's a big one. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, we have just one more question. Anything you, you feel you want to leave uh, or share with our community of both allocators and uh, fund managers? Uh, I would say... I don't know, just like, oh, oh, this is a time of opportunity. Uh, and you, uh, you can, it's your turn to make the world you want. Like, mm. that's your, it's your chance now. You can't just complain about what you got. Uh, and uh, you have fantastic tools. And there's such a great need. And uh, you just have to buckle up. Yeah. You know, you have to buckle up. I think that's going to be. <clears throat> the resource in the shortest supply is just going in there and doing it. Yeah. But, you know, see, that's why you need a futurist <laughs> because then you have the vision. Like, it's it's less scary because it's just so inevitable. Like, you're going to do this. You're going to do it well or poorly, but you're, this is, you're going to do something. Does that make sense? And so you really want to be the most fearless and the most aggressive. Not the least. Mm. Safety is danger right now. Thank you, Roxanne, for joining us and um, sharing so much wisdom and inspiration. Appreciate you. Okay, thanks. See you later, Alligator. After Portfolio Tile, investing with a smile. <laughs>